Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Andy Wong. Andy is a managing partner at Runnymede Capital Management. He's the host of the Inspired Money podcast. Today, we're talking about everything from inflation to personal finances to investing, emotions, and money. I really think this is a great podcast, so I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to get you on. I know that I've been doing a little research, a little digging before the show just to kind of prep. And what I've noticed is you generally focus on personal finance and helping people out. And something that I've noticed lately in my friend circles is everybody seems to be talking about inflation. I wonder if you could just sort of maybe explain what inflation is, maybe why we should or shouldn't be worried about it and how it could affect our personal finances. Sure. Well, sometimes inflation is called the silent killer because (laughs) as consumers, we all feel it. I'm sure that listeners, every time you go to the gas pump and you fill up gas, there is sticker shock. I mean, fuel prices keep going up and I don't know if you have a big car. I I don't even have that big a car and it can be $70. I'm in the US. I see you're in Canada, but it's just expensive. And week after week, month after month, that's going to start eating into other parts of your budget. And food food is up too. So food and fuel, which are just major everyday expenses, uh, starts eating into your ability to maybe go to the movies or go to a concert because you start noticing that you just have less extra cash on hand. Absolutely. And when we talk about inflation, I thought we could go into a little bit of the broader picture on what exactly is happening. Because I know a lot of people talk about oil prices, they talk about money printing, and generally these kind of subjects don't come to the forefront until you go to get gas. And here in Canada, it's $2 a liter. And then all of a sudden, everybody's talking about this. But as we know, this has been building for a while. So I don't know if you want to touch a little bit on the economics of inflation. Let me start by saying that I am not an inflation expert. And even I am a little bit challenged because in my career as a financial advisor, which has been for over 20 years, I have not had to invest clients' money in inflationary environment. You know, my entire career, which started in the mid-90s, it's been very low inflation. It's not something that I've had to deal with. And because of that, you know, I'm in a family business. I work with my brother. We're both financial advisors. We work with clients. And we've been reaching out to my father and his generation of professional money managers because they lived through the 1970s and had to deal with inflation. You know, inflation has been a topic that's, uh, it's been talked about because of the money printing that you talked about. I would say dating back to year 2000, Y2K, everybody was worried about computers shutting down, you know, when you flip from 1999 to 2000. And back then, Alan Greenspan started lowering interest rates to increase liquidity in the system. And even back then, you know, investors were talking about if you 
lower interest rates and put so much money into the system, one of the results can be inflation. But we just haven't seen that through Y2K and then the resulting internet bubble. I would say that it was that liquidity put into the system to cushion against Y2K that kind of pushed things along for the internet bubble to happen. Because when you have a lot of money in the system, you can have speculation. Financial crisis, we saw once again, because of subprime loans and trouble that the banks had with their balance sheets. Again, the Fed lowered interest rates to near zero. The liquidity, putting cash into the system, that's like oil in an engine. So that's the oil in the economic engine to keep the economy going and to help banks to shore up their balance sheets. Again, people were talking about inflation, but it it didn't happen because, well, one of the reasons is we have a lot of offshore, lower cost labor manufacturing. If you're importing inexpensive shirts and clothes and pants, and because of technology and productivity gains, we didn't see inflation. But all that has changed in 2022 with the you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine really pushed things along. It's a perfect storm, Joe. That with the pandemic, which is causing all kinds of supply chain issues. So it becomes like a supply and demand thing. You know, f- fuel prices are up, supply chain issues. So shipments that were coming from overseas are not coming easily. And again, whether it's coming by boat or coming by plane, that fuel cost, rising fuel cost is uh, you know, trickling into the price of goods that we pay. So we're seeing prices go up. Yeah. And of course, the result of that is less money in the bank account. I think that this is you know, great timing in a sense for you to be on the show as a financial advisor, because I know me personally, I kind of am just sort of thinking, how should I position myself through these types of moments? Because as you say, it's, it's fairly new. I obviously haven't experienced any of this either through my lifetime and managing my own money. And, you know, it's difficult when you think about, you know, rates rising on one side for your home. And then you think about, Prices also rising for food and groceries and power or energy. And then you see, you know, the stock market isn't doing so well as of late in most sectors, you know, as opposed, other than energy, of course. But it just seems like there's nowhere really great to put your money. I wonder what you think about that. Well, in speaking to some of the money managers who managed money in the 1970s, a lot of them are advising that you know you own commodities because the price the commodity pricing is going up with inflation people talk about owning stocks owning equities as an inflation hedge because you know stocks can go up you can own real estate if there's inflation the real estate values could go up along with inflation where it gets tricky is that the inflation that we're all dealing with as consumers, the question is, does it reach a point where consumers are losing confidence? We're seeing that already. I think that consumer confidence levels have been falling and we're not in a recession yet. I feel like we're kind of on the brink of a recession. Uh, The possibility is there. Many 
Wall Street strategists are talking about 2024 as the timing of a possible recession. I, I think with inflation where it is, it may come sooner than later. But I think the tricky part is if consumers are actually not having as much money to spend, we, we have less disposable income for entertainment and even for food. Like If we're limited because of rising prices, demand goes down. And if there's a recession, then the stocks that people say could be an inflation hedge could have a correction. So you could have a correction in the near term, you could have a recession. So therefore, stock's not that great. And even owning real estate as an inflation hedge, in the near term, mortgage rates have gone up pretty significantly. And there could be a slowdown in the real estate market. Like I don't have a clear answer for you. There's a lot of uncertainty right now. And I think timing is challenging. My advice for most investors is to be patient. And when dealing with inflation, I think it just underscores the foundational principles of personal finance. It's like you need to budget. You need to look at your household's balance sheet to see where is your money going so that you can prioritize where do you want to spend? Where can you possibly cut back? And really just to be more aware of where money is going so that you can make adjustments. Yeah, I agree. One thing that I did personally uh, up here in Canada, we generally do five-year term mortgages and my own mortgage is a variable rate. The payment doesn't change, but the rate does. So our Fed is about a month ahead of yours. And once they raise the rates, I started, you know, investing more into my mortgage rather than into the market. And yep. I see that as one way for me to feel a little more comfortable that I'm paying down more debt in case of an interest rate hikes, in case they get up to 3%. We're only at one and a half, but if we get up to three, four, you know, I wouldn't want to carry as much debt. And especially as you say, if there's a market correction, then, you know, you could be losing on both sides. You could have higher debt with a higher interest rate, as well as lose money in the stock market. I wonder if there are some other ways that some other risks you may see in the modern day and some ways to mitigate those. Well, I think that's really smart. Looking at your different uh, debt to see where are interest rates and trying to anticipate if you have a variable rate that you can start paying that back sooner and trying to pr prioritize what do you pay down first? Uh, because you don't want to be getting squeezed on both sides where your investments are earning less and your expenses are going up. So I think that you know working that balance, that's why it's important to really take a look. I, I find that uh, most people, you know how much you make, but too, too many of us don't really know where does the money go every month. And usually my advice is because the word budgeting just sounds often, one, not fun, and two, kind of intimidating. I just tell people to track you know, where their spending is. Uh, tracking is not that hard. Uh, if you just do that for one month, uh, tracking, because most of our expenses go towards housing, food, transportation, and healthcare. It's really like three or four items that are the biggest percentages of our spending. And then from there, you do a second month 
and you can start identifying trends. And what I like is that most of us, if we do that, we can't help but start making improvements. You know, you can, you just kind of start gamifying it with yourself and say, oh, wait a minute, I'm not using this subscription or uh, maybe I'm, I'm paying way too much for cable and internet. Some of those recurring bills are, are good ones where you can call the company and try to renegotiate or ask for a promotion. Uh, sometimes they'll give you, you know, $10, $20 off a month. And some of those things can just help, you know, when you're trying to deal with higher prices all around. Yeah, I agree. I actually think that's a really good point that the first step in mitigating risk is, you know, learning where you're spending your money and perhaps dealing with that first before the second part, which is, of course, investing or deploying the extra cash. So, you know, before you start thinking about, oh, where do I need to invest? What stock should I buy? Should I put it into my mortgage? All of these options that we have, maybe we should dial it back and look at our budget first. Yeah, I think that that's a good place to start. And like I said, you know, you just just start tracking where your spending's going because um, it just helps to see where it's going. And then you start making improvements. I think on the investing side, it's the D word. It's diversification because it's very hard to predict six months ago that oil prices would just keep going up. And if you own some oil companies, uh, that is giving you some kind of protection. It's giving you a little bit of protection, right? Because uh, the oil company stocks have have gone up much higher than I would have expected. So that diversification helps in your portfolio. It's funny you mentioned that because on this show, I generally talk a lot about energy and uh, Canadian oils definitely being one of the things I've looked at for a while. And it's mostly because Canadian oils kind of heavier regulations involved. So, you know, in a carbon neutral, car- net zero world, they may want to get their oil from us because it's kind of cleaner and they they have more regulations. But with that being said, I thought we could, you know, talk a little bit about the discipline involved in budgeting. Because I know you're a guitar player and I am too. And, you know, these things don't happen easily. Would you suggest for budgeting an app or do you like to do it manually? Cause I, I actually prefer to do it manually cause it's kind of more painful when I have to write in a $3 coffee or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think that everybody's different. Some people like an app like mint where it's more connected with your credit card and you don't have to type anything in at my house. It's something that my wife and I are doing together. And actually my wife has been doing it even looking at it more closely. And she tried different things. Uh, First, she tried an app like Mint and maybe like you, she felt like she's not really paying attention to it. It helped her to see where money was going, but she was less cognizant or conscious of, you know, how much are we spending on pizza on a Friday night or something. She found that using a spreadsheet was sort of a happy medium for her, but it took a little bit of manual entry. You know, she would take the receipts and type it into Excel, into a spreadsheet. And she felt like that, that was a good balance for her. As long as she could afford the time, then she's actually reviewing it and kind of touching the, the receipts. There's like a tactile part. So you kind of feel the pain of, 
man, the uh, receipts in my wallet are kind of thick this <laughs> thick this week. <laughs> and like, just, I don't know if it's remorse, but just feeling that close to it, then you start realizing, all right, well, maybe, maybe we should cut back on dining out and cooking more at home. But I think a lot of those things have been interesting during the pandemic because during lockdowns, we were forced to stay at home and we've just seen like different scenarios of only cooking at home and then slowly venturing out and then trying to figure out what is the mix. One, where are we comfortable going out and dining out versus managing and monitoring expenses? I always find it very interesting, the psychology of money. And when you get talking about money, for whatever reason, we get very emotional. And I think it's because it's tied to all the things we like and you know, you want to have more so you can get these things and you, you use money to buy your food. And it's very easy to get emotional with money, both in the stock market and your personal finances. And I think that that's one way that we could use our own emotions to help us is because it almost hurts a little bit when you see like, you know, $75 pizza. You're like, what was I thinking? Maybe I shouldn't have bought that that night or whatever. Um, I wonder if there are any other examples you could think of in stock market investing or personal finance where you can use your emotional reactions to your advantage. Yeah, it's really tricky when it comes to money because on the investing side, I, I, I find that usually making emotional decisions to invest, to me, that, that usually doesn't work out well because usually I'm trying to buy something because I have a fear of missing out or <laughs> I, I'm not looking or analyzing a company without emotion. Uh, most of the time, we try removing the emotion when we're putting our analyst hat on and trying to analyze what is the company's earnings? What do we think that the company stock should be worth? Is it expensive or inexpensive? I often find that the emotional part for me makes me make the wrong decisions. But you're right. You can use your emotions to try to dial back your spending. Or I think when you're shopping, sometimes the emotional part that I'm talking about with stocks, it, people find that it's the impulse buys that they're trying to uh, back off from. So it's like, you know, you just slow down. You're like, well, let me just wait a day and see if I still really want this thing. And then that kind of uh, gives you a more objective, less emotional purchase. But I, I think it's different for everybody. If you can give yourself an electric shock <laughs> and <laughs> that strikes the chord emotionally <laughs> to, to make you put your wallet back, whatever works, every, everybody's different. Yeah, I know something that I do as far as FOMO or fear of missing out. I feel like that's something you can't necessarily get rid of. And I've talked about this before, but I generally allocate a small amount of money to a YOLO fund. It's just enough that you can invest in something that you really want to, but it's not enough that you're going to lose any compounding interest in any way necessarily. So, but what I find with that is, you know, because we have this thing, recency bias that we get when you buy a new stock. I find that I learn a lot from those YOLOs because, you know, it almost distracts you from your larger amounts in some ways. So you don't, I tend to not get as emotional with that because I'm not thinking about it. 
So it's, you know, that's just kind of one way that I sort of use that FOMO to my advantage is it distracts me from the large amounts of money that I really shouldn't be playing with. Well, you got to live, right? So if you have a little bit of money set aside for YOLO, then you can still, (laughs) you can still treat yourself (laughs) and enjoy life a little bit. You're not like miserly. You're not too extreme. You can still enjoy life, which I think makes it easier, right? It's, it's no different than if you're dieting, but you allow for cheat days once a week. It makes it um, more sustainable. Yeah. And just carrying that through, obviously, you don't want to be emotional with the money that matters. And I think that's you know a big money mistake that people can make is they start to either you know, regain some of their losses while investing, or they get really excited about a stock that they're looking at because it's done well, or maybe they, you know, buy in at the right time and then are all of a sudden emboldened by the move that has gone up. So they feel like they were right. And then they buy more. And of of course you buy at the top. So just moving with that, what are some of the money mistakes that you see people make either personal finance or investing? Well, I think the statistics just show that most people are not saving enough. I think in a zero interest rate environment, we have not been rewarded to be savers. And I would go as far to say that society has been you know, very credit-driven and consumer-driven. Our economies are pretty consumer-driven. So we're not rewarded for being savers. And the statistics aren't that great. Uh, I, I think it's something like, of people can't handle an unexpected expense of $1,000 or more, something like that. Things that we can do to improve is just better planning. You know, we talked about the tracking of finances. The next step would be doing some budgeting uh, so that you can plan out your expenses for next month and understand what you were spending last month. And then the more that you can invest early, the better. If you can automate that through a retirement plan or through some sort of system, uh, that's good too. And again, that's removing some of the emotional emotional aspect and just um, you know trying to put it on autopilot and having a program so that over time you're just investing a certain percentage of your paycheck and not really looking at it. That tends to serve people pretty well. Yeah, and part of the reason why. I started this podcast. Well, first of all, it was because I really enjoy finance and I'm constantly reading about it. So why not, you know, create a hobby out of it? But secondly, was here in Canada, and I'm sure it's the same in the US, we really don't get much education on personal finance. Almost all of this, these lessons I've had to learn through alternative means. There are, you know, online courses you can take and different places. And some of them are free actually here in Canada. I may actually just link that on the show, but where do you think people should go to learn and how do they start? Because I feel like money is kind of one of those topics that people either avoid or aren't necessarily comfortable talking about. In the world that we live in today, there's an abundance of information. Like we don't get enough personal finance in school, but the good news is that there are many websites, there are many apps, there are podcasts like yours, There are many places where we can get good learning and good lessons 
it's, it's great because there's entertainment, right? I can listen to your podcast and be entertained and learn something, which is great. Uh, maybe schools should be more like that. Uh, that, w- <laughs> that would be a great thing. And it's practical too. So I would share the, the book Millionaire Next Door. I, I like that book. I've seen it in some of my clients, like one of my favorite clients who passed away a couple of years ago in his 90s. He never had a job that paid a very high salary and he, he never got married. So he was, he was a bachelor his entire life. With that, his expenses were pretty low. But looking at him, you, you would never know that he was a multimillionaire. And especially if you talk to him and learn that he never had a high paying job. But in talking to him and then in working with him, it was very much the million dollar next door story uh, throughout his entire career. Even though he didn't make a lot, he always lived very frugally and he, he was always investing. He was always buying stocks that he liked. He was always buying blue chip stocks, really, like recognizable names, solid companies. These were large cap companies that were growing their earnings. And he was buying them in the 1950s, 1960s, and would just hold on to them. And by the time that he was in his 80s and 90s, the value and appreciation that he had was incredible. He died a multimillionaire, but yet lived in a very modest house his whole life. I think his only splurge was maybe when he was around 75, he bought a condo down in Florida so that during the winters, he could escape New Jersey and go to a warmer climate. But even then, you know, he, he bought a condo. He didn't buy a big house down there. And very, very happy guy. Uh, his legacy was, even though he didn't have children, but some of his relatives inherited his money. Uh, but great guy, worked hard, and you would never know uh, how, how, how much money he had. And it was just a case of investing consistently and being patient over time. He, he didn't trade. He would just buy quality companies and held on to them. Wow. I think that's amazing. It, and that's the goal to, to be that patient, really. So good for him because I know myself how difficult it can be to hold through ups and downs. And I've seen even in my young age, I feel like I've, I'm not obviously not 90, but I feel like I've seen my shares of dips lately. You know, <laughs> we, I had to deal with have. COVID and I've had to deal with lots of these things going on. Um, so I feel like I'm a little more grizzled than I should be at this point. That brings up a really good topic, I think, considering you know your experience in the industry and the amount of time that you've been doing this. What are some of the characteristics you see in successful clients, people who have done well with their money, obviously patience, discipline, these kind of things, but there has to be some common traits there. Yeah, I find that those who do well over time and stress out less, they don't look at it that often. (laughs) They're not watching it every day. Many of them were busy as professionals when they were working. They were attorneys, they were business owners, corporate executives. Many of them were, were too busy running their businesses during their careers. And that's why they hired a financial advisor to work with so that they didn't have to look at it day to day. And then in retirement, they're not staring at it. And I find that that helps. 
you're you're outsourcing that role if you can find like if you can put a good team together, accountant, financial advisor, attorneys for estate planning. You know, you you try to work with good people and the right people, and then the stock market goes up and down every day. They're not really looking at it. So in that sense, they are taking a long term approach, and I like to say that. Sometimes it's like planting a tree and having the tree grow. Like you can't stare at a sapling and say, you know, you got to grow faster. You know, you're just trying to do the right things. You're trying to water and fertilize, but it takes quite a bit of patience. But, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, you have a much bigger tree than you ever imagined. So, you know, I think it's, it's kind of that taking that mindset that you know there's a temptation to to stare at stock prices and stare at your portfolio every day and when it's going up it feels good when it goes down it doesn't feel good truly being a long-term investor requires that understanding and and not to look at it all the time and it's easier said than done absolutely it's tough especially now with the available means that we have you can carry your phone around and check a stock price every couple of minutes. Yes. And I do that. Yeah, <laughs> so, me too. <laughs> so, so do as I say, don't do as I do. Yes, exactly. I feel the same way. But I think that a tree, and well, to be fair, if you have a passion for it, I think that it's okay. As long as you know you understand what you're doing. And if you can check stocks every day, if you want, if you're passionate about it, just understand that you shouldn't be playing that much. Because like, for example, with your tree analogy, I agree, you can't watch it grow. It's going to take forever. And if, if you try to fertilize or water it too much, you'll kill it. And like, I mean, that can happen with your portfolio too. If you trade too much, if you play too much, you that just takes a couple of wrong trades and you're, and you're done. And it takes forever to grow that back. Right. So um, it's that's, tricky a, that's a real it- issue. When it comes to investing, it's pretty tricky because there's not one right way to do it and one wrong way to do it. There mm-hmm. are so many different strategies and approaches, like the, the story that I was sharing. You know, the guys who bought stocks and just held on to them, it served them well over time. They had some in there that went bankrupt and weren't there 30 years later. But on a whole, they did very well. But I know other investors that you know, they, they are more active. And like my father had a, uh, a good friend who ran a large hedge fund. And one of his sayings was, don't go home with a loss. You know, he was always cutting the bottom part of his portfolio. Whatever names weren't working, he would sell them. I think that that worked for him too, because he was always controlling. The, you know, it's like the, the holdings in his portfolio that weren't working, he was always controlling, all right, the maximum loss is going to be 10%. I'm not going to let those grow bigger than that. And I think that that can be a valuable lesson too. Interestingly, if he liked the company, he'd be willing to buy it. And then if it's not working, he'd sell it. And then he'd just try buying it again. And he'd just rinse and repeat. So he was always limiting the downside. And I found that to be valuable too, because I think it's very easy to buy a stock that you like, and just the timing wasn't right. If it goes down 50%, 80%, 
it takes a long time to come back. So it's either going to take a lot of patience or you need to be disciplined about limiting your downside. And that can, that can help a lot too. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. It's so hard to sell a stock that you believe in. And it's almost as hard to sell a stock that's losing as it is to winning because you think when it's going down, it'll bounce back. Sometimes it doesn't. You think when it's going up, it's going to keep going. So, I mean, I feel like where I would like to get personally is a place where I'm okay with trimming at a loss and I'm also okay with trimming in gains, but you know, it's difficult because you can, you can miss out either way. So it's almost easier to just hold. So some of the questions, you know, this leads me to my next question that I have for you is in the environment that we're moving into me personally, in my opinion, I think it's sort of a new era of investment. I think that it's going to be a stock pickers market again, as opposed to index funds. What's your opinion on active versus passive management? Because I agree with you. I think that everybody should automate in dollar cost average, but should that go into you know an active fund or should we just go for the low fee index funds that have worked so well for the past 20 years? That's, that's a question that I have. Yeah, it's been really interesting because you see headlines where Elon Musk or Kathy Wood, they've been talking about uh, this disproportionate size of passive investing. And will there be a reversion to the mean where active investing you know, becomes more rewarding again? And I've found that it's been like a really interesting academic discussion too, because the top passive index ETF investors, they just have like so much voting power when it comes to proxy voting. So BlackRock, Vanguards of the world, they have this enormous influence, which seems like a little weird. It seems like the shareholders should have uh, the right to vote and not just have it like top heavy in these companies, like maybe three, four companies. It's tough one. It's a tough one because that's been a discussion that's been going on a long time. Will passive investing sort of peak and then active investors have their day again? It hasn't been happening. The fund flows are still going towards passive investing. I tend to have sort of a hybrid approach uh, because in my career, I've seen very wealthy investors who picked stocks and those stocks grew for decades and was very, very rewarding. I think one of the benefits to investing in a company versus an ETF or an index is that you you feel like you know the company and you watch the company very closely. And then when things get bumpy, I find that you tend to hold those companies longer. Uh, Whereas sometimes you own the index and there's no attachment, you can kick it out really easily. And maybe you shouldn't be. Whereas if you're investing in a company, you listen to you listen to conference calls. You feel like you know the management. You like the product or the service, and it just kind of keeps you keeps you in the game, so to speak. I tend to have a hybrid approach. I think that you know there are benefits to both. I want to invest in companies that I believe in, and I hope that I can hold them for the long term. But there are benefits to owning the index too, because if I'm only picking individual stocks. I might have a bias for owning 
like retail companies over energy companies. Or if you're in Canada, you might be drawn to owning more energy. Whereas if if I own the index, I'm going to have that diversification. And if energy is dominating in the near term, I'm going to do better in I'm going to do better owning the index. And I saw that even in 2021, my individual stock picks did great for the first quarter. A lot of them were smaller cap companies, but then like second, third, fourth quarter, they didn't really act that well. And the FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Tesla, Google, Meta, you know, it was the big tech companies that were just doing really well. They were the beneficiaries of the pandemic and really dominated market performance. So when I looked at my portfolio, it was the index side that was doing better. And as a stock picker, it's a little frustrating. Uh, <laughs> I was like, why am I spending time doing research? I would have been better off just owning the S&P 500. But you know, times change too. A lot of the tech companies have been having a tough time in 2022. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And one issue I find with index funds can be the way that they're weighted. So like, as you say, with the S&P 500, you look at that, it's so heavy tech. And then, of course, if tech starts to crash, you're almost overexposed to those, I find, because there's such a big chunk of that index. So you may be better off to just take a look at some of the indices and maybe see how heavily they're weighted in certain areas. I know one thing that I personally like to do is if I like a sector, I will just maybe buy a more condensed ETF for that. So for example, there's a good Canadian oil ETF that I bought. They're all small to mid cap Canadian oil companies because I'm bullish on that, you know, not financial advice, of course, but it is just the way that I like to run because then you don't necessarily need to put in the time to, as you say, to pick the the individual stocks, if you like a sector, maybe you, maybe you don't have that kind of time. Just before I let you go, what do you think about kind of smaller ETFs, not necessarily huge indices like the S&P 500, NASDAQ 100, some, something like a smaller, you know, we also have a uh, equal weighted Canadian bank ETF where you get the top six and it's all equal weight. Um, what's your opinion on those? I think it can work because like you said, if you're identifying a sector that you think is undergoing positive change, or there's some fundamental driver that's benefiting the sector, and you want exposure to that sector, but without trying to pick which one's going to be the top one or two winners, then you just buy the group. And usually these ETFs are pretty pretty reasonable fee-wise. I think that one thing that I tend to look at is the liquidity, how many shares are trading per day because there's so many ETFs now that some of them don't trade with a lot of volume. And sometimes the the bid and ask, like the spread can be pretty wide, which I feel like generally I try to stay away from. I like to see something that's a little bit more liquid and I feel like it's easy to buy, it's easy to sell and not with a big spread. But at the same time, I also feel like it's it's hard making that call knowing which sector is going to be turning toward outperformance or which one's going to be underperforming. I would just share that my, my investment approach, which was developed by my father, who was director of research at the Bank of New York, and then he ran the bank's money management subsidiary for 10 years. So he was managing the bank's pension fund as well as outside clients before he founded Runnymede. 
And my brother and I have since taken over Running Mead. So it's very much a family business, uh, but we still follow my father's investment philosophy, which is that earnings matter. The companies that we own are growing their earnings. So it's a very simple investment thesis. If a company is growing its earnings, the stock price should follow over time. And that's why the S&P 500 also goes up. The 500 companies in aggregate, the earnings are growing. So you want to own the group, the earnings go up, the stock prices go up. I've always had a hard time figuring out which sector is going to outperform. If I'm just looking to have diversification across different sectors and different industries, but the common characteristic is consistent earnings growth. If I own a portfolio of those and they're diversified, I may not be able to forecast which ones are going to perform the best for the year, but as a group, they tend to do well and underpinned by positive earnings and preferably not a lot of debt on the balance sheet. That's one thing that's kind of changed over time. When there was very cheap money, companies would just borrow and buy back stock. It's it's harder and harder to find companies that have zero debt, but I don't know, maybe that'll change since you said that, you know, we're kind of in a era of investing that could be shifting. Maybe it's shifting more towards active and away from passive. It might be changing in that sense too. We'll see what happens. Yeah, for sure. I agree. So then um, just to wrap it up, I wonder if I could just give you the opportunity to talk about some of the things that you're doing, because I know you also have your own podcast, the Inspired Money podcast, and then obviously your business. So is there any other content and maybe just, you know, some things that people could look forward to listening to with your podcast? Yeah. Inspired Money, it's been running for four and a half years now, a weekly podcast and just something that I've been having fun with, just like you, you're having fun with your podcast. And we're motivated a little bit for the same reasons. Uh, I feel like we didn't get enough personal finance in school. I'm a financial advisor by profession. And the podcast is just a fun way to talk about money, but not talk about money. So I've interviewed people from Hollywood. I've interviewed authors. I've interviewed uh, people who are running nonprofits. Recently, I interviewed Maggie Doyne, who, gosh, she's she's like a 30-something philanthropist. Uh, she took a gap year from college, well, before going to college, and ended up never going to college because during her travels, she ended up in Nepal and fell in love with the country, but saw a country where there were an estimated 1 million orphans. So she stayed in Nepal, never went to college, built a home adopted over 50 kids, built a school, built a women's center. And it's just an incredible story of, you know, finding one's purpose. So those are kind of the fun things that I'm, I'm exploring. So I got to ask her about, you know, how, how do you define wealth? And she grew up in New Jersey in an affluent town and ended up in a country where the dollar goes much further and she can have a much bigger impact with dollars donated to her nonprofit. So some really interesting stories just gets, gets all of us thinking about money a little bit differently, maybe changing our perspectives. And that's fun. So yeah, Inspired Money, I'm at Runnymede Capital Management. 
managing uh, investment portfolios for clients, doing retirement planning. We work with business owners with their 401k plans. But yeah, people can find me at runnyme.com. They can find the podcast there. That's R-U-N-N-Y-M-E-D-E.com. Or find me, Andrew Wong, W-A-N-G, at LinkedIn. I'm typically posting a lot of articles and things there. So free content for people. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, I can talk about passive income and index funds all day, but it is great to open up the conversation to wealth and what is defined as wealth and success and all those other things. So yeah, with that being said, I just want to say thanks for coming on and hopefully we can do this again sometime. It's been fun. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. 